Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, <laughs> why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy. They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P.com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages go 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 find your healing go find your happy stages podcast is sponsored by better help that's h-e-l-p hi i'm stephanie j block and i'm mary lee fairbanks welcome to stages podcast where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage it still says my internet connection is unstable it still says it's unstable, my love. Maybe it won't. Maybe it won't happen. Oh, damn it. You're frozen again. Oh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. You're right. in and out. Really? Sure. You didn't yeah. hear me say I'm unstable, the internet connection, <laughs> and that's what I have in common with this epic internet connection. <laughs> And then we both sound like squeaky dog toys when we laugh. Cast members, on today's show, we have one of the nicest writers I have ever worked with. He won the 2010 Tony Award from Memphis. His comedy, I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change, is one of the longest-running off-Broadway shows. His other works include Drama Desk Award-winning Nice Work If You Could Get It, Toxic Avenger, All Shook Up, Ernest Shackleton Loves Me, which I just adored, What's New Pussycat, which has recently finished its run in London, and Diana, based on the life of Princess Diana of Wales, is now streaming on Netflix. He's a founding board member of the philanthropy Only Make Believe, and they have performed for almost 100,000 children in hospitals, care facilities, and special education centers. Please welcome Mr. Joe DiPietro. Joe DiPietro to stage, please. Joe, can we have you on stage? Hello. Hello, How Joe. How are you? Good. I'm good. It's so How are you? good to see you. So good Hello, to see Joe. You. Stephanie, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I am doing fine. Doing fine. Now, let me correct right off the bat. Was it Tony's plural for Memphis? Yeah, it yeah. was two. It was two. <laughs> it two, was a, two, two. You don't want to separate siblings. No, you know exactly. what I mean? it was a fun, all I'll say it was a fun night. I so bet. <laughs> I bet. I want to jump in with I love you. You're perfect. Now change because anytime I see that there are over 5,000 performances of a show, there are very few shows that can tout that. I mean, very, very few, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's the, I think it's the second longest running off-Broadway show after the Fantastics. Fantastics. Yeah. Holy Brand, crap. Know. Yeah, millions That's of amazing. Yeah. Seb, Seb told me it was one of his, Sebastian, my husband, told me it was one of his very first professional experiences. He played oh. man number two. He mm. was thrilled. And the way they got him was the wording of, we will pay you $1,000 over the span of 10 weeks. And he got hooked up. And then finally he sat and he was like, wait a second. That's only $100 a week. What am I sure? <laughs> Not a mathematician, my husband. No, but, but he hears $1,000 and he's like, I'm a paid actor to do the most fun role. Yeah. So he said yes. There I had go. a blast doing that show. And, and the people that were in it, I mean, you just had the greatest cast members in and out, in and out. And I'm still friends with tons of them. I just loved it. Oh, yeah. It. Loved it. You know, it was it's so it's like, you know, it's funny because when I was... Uh, not a kid, but a much younger man when I wrote that. And you know, you know, that was like sketches about dating that I wrote about me and my friends. And you think, oh, 
a few people will like this. And suddenly it, you know, you put it up and it runs and it really started my career and you meet remarkable. You know, the one thing about shows, which a lot of people don't know about is when you do a show, you generally meet great people who you remain friends with for many, yeah. many years. And you see them in various guises in and out of the business and stuff. So it really, yeah. um, yeah, it was a great group. It was a great, you know, we had this super talented people throughout, you know, we really got, always got good people. And it's also amazes when I, you know, see auditions for shows and I see someone's done, I love you, you're perfect, uh, you know, all over the place. And I'm like, oh yeah, I totally can see them in this. <laughs> they can really sing and they're really funny. If you Sorry. were going to remount it now, yeah. what changes would you make as an author to kind of reflect what yeah. has happened? Yeah. You know, we did actually, re we did a revival of it with changes uh, at George Street Playhouse like two years ago, sort of a year before the pandemic. So there's a new version. Some of the things that, I mean, you know, it was 1996, so a lot has changed. Oh, One God. of the big things that have changed is how we use technology to interact with people. So there was a sketch about someone looking in their diary, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> like suddenly now it's like, what are you looking at when, you know, how you... <laughs> Blind date someone, you know, you right. Google someone. Groups over the years have made some of those couples, which were all heterosexual couples in the um, off-Broadway version, have just naturally made them, you know, gay couples and lesbian couples. Right. But we actually added some, uh, or we rewrote some things, so that's what they are. So for everyone right. to do. And also that we, we added a song that I literally can't believe how great a reaction it gets which is the, about guys sending crotch pics to the to women, which I didn't know guys did. I didn't know straight guys did. I'm a gay guy. I'm like, this is what gay guys do. And when my female friends were telling me, I bet this guy, and he sent me, I'm like, really? So we actually have a, a, a song called A Picture of His Penis that I thought, well, this is too crude. It People go crazy for it. Yeah, that's how, that's how we've... Uh, We've progressed. <laughs> and how many languages has it been done in? I mean, it's done everywhere all over the a world. Bunch. Yeah, no, it's great. It's China. There was a movie of it in Hong Kong, like a oh, big, wow. splashy, like, you know, all those numbers, you know, one number is two people playing tennis and suddenly there's like a thousand people with tennis rackets dancing. Yeah, That's no, it's, you know, amazing. Yeah, and you can't, you know, you, it was literally like, you never know what's going to hit. I mean, right. anyone in this business knows you, you think you're doing something you know, important or that's really going to reverberate and it doesn't. And then you do a, sh a show with four people about, you know, trying to connect with someone in life and it suddenly goes on and on. But like you said, writing that was personal. They were personal stories. So yeah. all of a sudden that personal becomes so universal because of the specificity with which you were writing. It's kind of amazing, right. really yeah. amazing. Yeah. I think writing is all about specificity. Specific becomes a universal. The gift I've gotten from writing and being creative is that I've learned we're all the same inside. Like mm -hmm. we're born with different bodies and ethnicities and sexual preferences and religions, whatever. But inside, we all want the same things out of life. We all want to be happy. We all want to love someone. We all want, want to be seen. Love. We want to be seen. You mm -hmm. want to be heard. You want to have a purpose. We all want those same things. And so when you can, as a writer, when you can imbue that with your characters, uh, everything else is literally the external, but it's really, you know, I, I feel what I love about theater is I feel it connects us all as humans when it's uh, done well, even if it's something as frivolous as, uh, you know, a, a musical comedy about uh, dating and romance. That's what theater is. That's yeah. the whole point. It's like to bring us to that space right. where we're all one and we share one heartbeat yeah. and one understanding of that, humanity. That explains it all. And was why I think theater, you know, even in these pandemic times will always exist. And, you know, theater's mm -hmm. been, people have been uh, saying it's dying for the last 2000 years, but it's, it's unique. And when it works, it, you know, it's, it works better than any creative entertainment form, I think. So you're an original Jersey boys. My daughter was born in Jersey as well. And I yeah. think Jersey gets a really bad rap. <laughs> so tell me about like being raised in Jersey, great memories, I'm guessing, helping yeah. a supportive family. I, you know, I, I came from like an Italian American family and a very middle class. A couple of my grandparents were immigrants, like literally, you know, came here when they were 14 uh, alone because there was no work or food for them in Italy. You what know, part of Italy like, did they come from? What part? Uh, all over. My grandfather uh, was born in a little town called Interdoc, which is um, 
uh, river south of Rome. Uh, one was from Sicily, their family. One was from uh, up by Lake Cuomo. And they all met in New Jersey uh, in Cliffside Park, sort of at like an Italian, you know. Yeah. It's not even middle class. It was really a lower class, but no one knew they were lower class. They were all just, you know, my grandfather, one built railroads, one worked in a factory all his life. So it was very sort of, you know, the American immigrant experience. And then their goal was you educate your kids so they can have a better life than you do. So my dad went to college on like the GI Bill and was a terrible student, but became a businessman. And my mom, who was valedictorian of her class, became a housewife because that's what you did in the 1950s, Mm, mm. you know, and she raised kids. And then she went back to school later on and actually um, uh, became a really wonderful artist. Actually, she's a great um, uh, painter, watercolors. But it was very much raising in a very um, sort of conservative, but very loving family. And one thing was always to culture the kids. Like the big thing was you expose your kids to as much as you can. So I grew up in Jersey, uh, 20 minutes from New York City. And my dad worked there. So when I was growing up in the 1970s. He always took us to see shows, the big shows of the 70s, like that were suitable for children. So like Annie and Shenandoah and The Wiz. And the first show they took me to see was 1776. And it just, I remember the lights came up on the Continental Congress and I was hooked. I was like, yeah. I, don't, I can still remember that moment where I was sitting. I was in the mezzanine on the left and the lights came up and it was the original cast I, I have from the Playbill. And I was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know how I can be a part of this, but I have to be a part of this. I, I started going on my own when I was older, but you know, it's a great lesson and really exposing your kids to as much as you can, because who knew? Well, yeah. Were you an avid reader and writer up to that point? Like your mama as valedictorian, did yes. she instill those sort of um, I always love reading and I always read a journal. I wrote poetry and short stories, but I, I also was very hooked on um, old movies for some reason. I don't know why when I was a kid, like, Me too. you know, black and white. Like Me too. Yeah, same. <laughs> Who knows? Really? You know, they're so, some of those movies are so well-written and I just like loved them. I had um, the biggest crush on Jimmy Stewart. My mother said, oh, my God, the yeah. TV and if Jimmy Stewart would just stop and stare at him and him <laughs> and Danny Kaye. Oh, Lord. Oh, yeah, I love it. These are good yeah. choices, Mary. Danny Kaye. Yeah, these are good and, choices. Oh, I was madly yeah. in love. My mother just thought I was the strangest child. I know, I <laughs> Everybody girl. else loved Greg Brady. And I'm like, no, it's Danny yeah. Kaye. <laughs> I think, you know, I think us, us theater folks are all like a little odd in certain ways. We're but so I was like, weird. Well, you know, I'd be sitting <laughs> home and watch, you know, a Barbara Stanwyck movie and be happy as I am. But I think I sort of like had picked up an ear for dialogue from them. And what I also used to do was I would, there was a place in our public library. I grew up in a little town called Oradell in New Jersey. I know and it well. It a place that had new planes. You know it? Yeah. I, I do. You want to know the, the, yeah. the connection is a little odd, but my dog who just passed oh. away, but he was oh. my life and love. And yeah. we would go to Oradell Animal Hospital all yes. the time because right it was there. one of those places that literally had like internists and ophthalmologists yeah. and orthopedic mm-hmm. surgeons for mm-hmm. animals. And so yeah. we would be in your town a lot with our little pooch. Yeah, no, I, I grew up, you know, four minutes from there. So yeah, so that's where I grew up. And, but the, the library had all these plays that were, um, that, you know, that you could take out and they were sort of plays of the 1970s and sixties, which actually were very, seemed very sexy and contemporary dealing with all sorts of issues that I'd loved reading. So I would take out classic plays, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Olean Hellman, to sort of more modern plays. And, you know, it was a real education that I just did it because I loved it. I would just read these plays and I loved how dialogue flowed off the page. And I had mm-hmm. such reverence for uh, playwrights um, and they opened up worlds to me that I wasn't getting on television or in the movies or, you know, in the literature that was being um, assigned at school. So it really, you know, I'm sort of a little self-educated in, in, in that way, but I just, you know, loved it. Like no one had to tell me to read these. I just loved reading them. Do you find yourself eavesdropping all the time in coffee shops and listening to conversations oh, yeah. to hear for you all the time? <laughs> I, do. I do. And sometimes I have to like, I'll be with my boyfriend. I'll be, <laughs> so I'll be zoning out. Cause I'll, I'm like, like listening. No, no, stay in, this stay in reality. Come back. Come back. Let's go come back. Yeah. Come back. Yeah. Right. That's <laughs> the, uh, that's the original reality show, right. Where we're all yeah. just kind of watching each other going, Oh, oh they're on a first date. Oh, this is not going well. This is Fight. not going you well. Know. How does this work out? I could use that. Yeah. Yep. So the worst is when is myself, if I'm having an argument, like, you know, my boyfriend or something and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I could use that. That's interesting. I'm like, <laughs> can, you, oh. can you just stop for a second? I want to write that yeah. down. So don't stay in the fight. Stay in the real life. <laughs>
since you are so uh, well acclaimed on both the off-Broadway stage and the Broadway stage, do you feel the pressure is different when you're creating? Oh, yeah. yeah, big time pressure. Yeah, Talk a little yeah. bit about that and what that feels like. Well, you as know, like author. you know, I you know, and and off Broadway. I mean, I've been doing this now for 25 years, and off Broadway's really changed. I mean, when we started with "I Love You Perfect," now change. You could do a little musical off Broadway that's commercial and could run, and no one says, "Let's move it to Broadway." And right, you know. And it's I happy to be just not a yeah. just. It's happy to be an off Broadway you know, show. It's, it's, it's saddened me, you know, not only musicals but also plays. I mean, there was a time where the hit from Playwrights Horizons and from you know Lincoln Center would move off Broadway and run for two or three years, mm. and those plays would make their off, and then those plays would would play all over the country and the world, and then make their authors a lot of money. Now the pressure is, oh, if you have an off Broadway hit, move it to Broadway and expose it to a bigger audience, which works for some shows, but not all of yeah. them. Yeah. So I feel there's a real pressure to Broadway. You know, it's just the the money is. And I always say that when you have a new show on Broadway um, during previews in the back of the theater, you meet a new producer every night because someone comes up to you and says, hi, Joe, I'm one of your producers. Right. And because so many people are putting money into it because you need yeah. millions and millions of dollars. You don't right. know if they put 10,000 in or with all due respect, they don't know the difference between saying a producer and an investor. Right. And then these are different. Right. But they like to immediately come up and say, yeah, Oh, I'm a producer on the show. And you're like, generally, yeah. Supportive and nice. And you know, you're $5,000 is a lot of money. So you're grateful. A lot of people say, Oh, people shouldn't be called producers unless they do this. But I'm like, you know what? We need the money and the enthusiasm. I think they're patrons of the arts. No one puts really puts money in thinking they're going to make a zillion dollars, mm-hmm. you know, because you never know. So um, I really appreciate them. But you do meet, but there are a lot of people and there's yeah. just pressure, especially when things, you know, every show always has a, I always call, no matter, even if a show is a big hit and goes well, there's always a bump somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you really need to work with people who know how to sort of get over any sort of um, bumps in the road that you might have. Yeah. But yeah, there's just a lot of pressure and, you know. I, you know, I, I've been around long enough that I just try to focus on the work always, try to ignore what I call the circus that goes around any show, which is, you know, <laughs> the, the, the noise, the noise, 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 the noise, noise, and the chat rooms and Twitter and this and the, like, just, you just like, you know, I feel like as creative people, we're so lucky to do what we do. Mm-hmm. And I so love it. I just try to really focus on what's on stage and the relationship that the show has every night with its audience. I mean, that you learn more from the, putting a show in from an audience than any <laughs> reading, anybody reading it. So um, that's what I try to really sort of focus on. And is it yeah. hard sometimes to get the vision to gel between, you know, what you, what you envision, what the composer is envisioning and what the director is envisioning? Because I remember when we started Men, it started yeah. out really farcical and it was really yeah. big, big, big and over the top. Yeah. And it got kind of got whittled down, 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 down into And then by the end, it wasn't so farcical. It was a, it felt it had a totally different yeah. feel. Honestly, that was a show Marilyn and I did, which I still love, called The Thing About Men. We that show. changed the title. Uh, thanks. And it's, it's and uh, that was the one instance I actually had where the where a director who was, you know, a talented guy and had a different vision of the show than we did. And it seemed seductive at first. Uh, and <laughs> I was the one there was the one experience where I was really in the middle of rehearsals. I was like, oh, we have a different vision. We're not doing the same show. Mm. Um, and I still love how it came out. And, uh, you know, that great, you know, seriously, ridiculously talented cast. Uh, and it ran for a few months, but it, it was, that was a tough one. That was one of my, um, that was one of the experiences where the director and I sort of were not, uh, hopefully, you know, I, I believe in never exposing any problems to the cast, right? I think the cast needs to have one voice and to really do their show every night. But that was a tougher one. Yeah, because he, put it in a darker way than I think was written and that the material can withhold, um, which made for some interesting moments and some moments that were maybe pushing and pulling against the uh, intent. So Joe, is it hard for you to let go of those kind of experiences? Because uh, for me, I would think if I were a writer, I would have a really hard time not having my original vision put in place. And it would sort of be this white whale for me that I was chasing down to do again and again. I feel like if I have any keys to any success that I've had is that I keep trying to work on new things and I'm always trying to work on the next project prior to when I was, when I'm in the midst of one, which is like an old. Wow. So you uh, just jump right into something new. Jump right in, you know, usually something I've been working on, but just like, okay, this one show is not 
all you, no matter how well it goes or not. It's like, you know, be, try to be a, a writer that has a career that's beyond just this one thing that you want to say. So oh, I really smart do. And my rituals come afterwards. Yeah. That feels healthy to me. You know, when we asked um, James Lapine what his favorite show was, he mm-hmm. answered, I hope it's my next one. So of the similar sort of mind frame, you know, just constantly moving forward, proud of what you put out, but let's keep moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you how I I, I learned that actually? So uh, my first uh, show that went to Broadway was called All Shook Up and it was about, um, it was Elvis Presley jukebox. And we'd been a couple of years before we had a couple of readings and everyone loved, like all the people who make theater happen, the theater owners, the investors, producers, they all came to these readings. They were like, it's the next big hit. It's the next Mama Me. It was like all of this excitement. And I was first show on Broadway. Oh my God, this is my dream. Blah, blah. I have this Elvis, the Elvis people. Everyone loved it. We develop it for a couple of years. And then when it sort of opened and sort of like did okay, it ran for four or five months and it toured, but it certainly wasn't a hit, a big hit, uh, whatever that means. And it was really very devastating in a way. And, you know, so I sort of remember I went to like, I went on vacation for a week to lick my wounds and sort of come back. And I said, okay, how am I going to deal with this? Because what I had done was prior to that for two years, I worked on nothing but that show because I wanted it to be as good as it could be. I just was focused, focused, focused. Uh, So when that show opened, I realized, oh my God, I have nothing next. I have nothing Mm -hmm. really had a couple things that I've been developing, but there was nothing that was ready to go. Uh, and then I sort of had decided, you know what, I, there's one of two things I could do right now. I could retreat and maybe go to LA and write some sitcoms, or, which I didn't really want to do. Or I could do what no one expects of me, which is double down and really write for theater as much as I can and really try to do good work and focus on the writing and see what happens. And that's what I did. Four years later, Memphis opens on Broadway which was a show I had been working on a bit, but then I really sort of dove into that one. Yeah, it really was like a great lesson, like the old uh, success and failure are illusions, like yeah, keep on yeah. the journey. Have there been big lessons that came from the one that you just put up that you now bring to the next one that you're in the middle of as you go? I try to, yeah. You know, I always, uh, you know, I, I think like life, you always learn the same lessons over and over again. Which Agreed. Is, yep, one is like, be creative, be collaborative, like, be a good person and work with talented people and be open to them. So they want to work with you again and you want to work with them. Forget about yesterday because it doesn't matter. Do everything you can to focus on today and look towards tomorrow, which is, you know, really exciting. So is it hard? I think it's part of the process. I've I've learned to, you know, look, if, if you're not, if you don't like collaboration, do not go into theater and especially right. don't go into musical theater because right. then you're going to have a life full of frustration. And I've worked with great friends who are ridiculously talented where we've had disagreements over the direction something should go. You know, I'm very lucky. I work with, you know, I try to work with people who I think are super talented and super nice and decent people. And I've generally, you know, been been fortunate to have that. We try to talk things through and, you know, I also work with people. I always like to say I like to work with people smarter than me because I like I like to learn things. Like say, oh, that's an interesting thing, mm. or um, oh, I never thought of it that way, and I respect you, so let's try it that way. And then hopefully, if it doesn't work, they'll go back to my way. And if it does work, I'm the first to say, great, let's yeah. do it. I so, know you're working um, with Floaty Suarez right now, right? On What's New Biscuit. And yes. he can talk a lot about changing of vision and changing of course in the midst of yes. rehearsals or out of town. We did a lot of changing. But his his heart and his engagement and investment and belief in projects is something mm-hmm. I will never forget. He showed up every single day. He mm-hmm. fell madly in love with the cast and that sort of sort of parental support that I mm-hmm. feel he gives as a producer mm-hmm. really buoys, you know, a, yes. a show. So yes. how's it going over there in London? It looked like great. you guys yeah. got crazy great reviews. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you, and you never know, as we all know, you never know with the reviews. Yeah. And Floaty did the share show, which I loved. And you were obviously fantastic. In. Oh, thank you. And he was such a big supporter of that. He still talks it. And, you know, he's, he really is like, like, as you said, he's like a, like, producer as parent because there's a warmth there he keeps in contact with the cast of what's new pussycat which is as we record this playing in birmingham uh london which is where both floating and i are the two americans and we're both back in new york he keeps in contact with them all every day he's so supportive and he was the guy who really 
kept us through, through the pandemic and in line and he gives notes, but they're always smart and they're always okay. respectful. Cause that was my well, next question. How do you feel as an, as an author, having a producer mm-hmm. there behind the table almost every day? Because that is rare. That yeah, doesn't happen. It is rare. I, you know, I try to make it a conversation. I like it if it's a good producer and, and Floody's a great producer. I like it. And I try to have a conversation with them. So for instance, oftentimes, and there's of course more than one producer. So oftentimes I'll get Here's five thoughts I have on the show from a producer. What I always do, some people ignore those or just talk to them. I always sit down and I write out and I spend a little time writing out my th- my response. And someone's like, this is a good point. I'm working on it. And sometimes it's, oh, you know what? But if we do that, if we change this moment, then this moment won't work. Right. So we should talk about this. Thank and you. Find- However. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> one of my, one of, one of my uh, things I always say is never break something in a show that's working to fix something that isn't because then you have two broken things. Mm. So never wow. move something around because, oh, that's great in the second act. Let's put it in the first where we have this slow spot. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's fix the slow spot, but let's leave what's working there. So, you know, and I think when you can really talk, as I say, I sort of really go into the weeds with producers and say, you know, if you want to change this, this is how it's going to affect. And then they mm. can hear that. Producers raise a lot of money. They push us through. They make shows happen. They keep them going. They get us over the hurdles. So, you know, I want to have good relationships with um, my producers. And, you know, I've been fortunately to work with some really great ones over uh, over the years. So um, it's just engaging them. And, you know, What's New Pussycat is a big old... um, romp through the 60s and Tom Jones shows and it's really fun and Floaty was the one who pushed it through and the show like looks great and sounds great and the cast is just wonderful uh but it was interesting because I'm I'm the American author of a very British musical sometimes like the director will say well let's try this and I'm like is that funny? He goes, it will be to a British audience. Right, <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, they're laughing. <laughs> I don't understand it, but that's funny. So you have Why to... is blood pudding so funny? What is everybody <laughs> laughing at? Yeah, exactly. Sounds so disgusting. I'm like, okay. So, um, yeah. And, you know, there's always surprises. Yeah. But, but like a floaty is just a great, you know, we all should be blessed with uh, producers like that. But floaty is also, I think, as, as you were alluding to, Stephanie, very detail-oriented, like, yeah. The costumes, which are just gorgeous and what's new pussycat, they're from the swinging 60s. They're very mod. They're super fun and colorful. You would have a note session. You'd be like, you know, the sleeves on that coat, you know, are, are, are sort of distracting. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? And then the next time I'd see the show, I'd be like, oh, yeah, those sleeves are <laughs> interesting. <laughs> or oh, a one act play. What are they doing? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he really is, you know, precise, but super supportive and, and, and all that, which you ultimately want. So tell me a little about um, Diana. Tell me how how it ended up. I'm assuming it got filmed and the the deal was made before the pandemic hit, and then that's why no. they just no, they didn't. So no. what what was that a risky choice to have it released on Netflix before it? You know, you bring it live. Well, we, you know, it was um, so my show Diana about Princess Diana. We were we had started previewing on Broadway um, after debuting at La Jolla Playhouse a year earlier. Uh, uh, a week, week and a half before Broadway was shut down by the pandemic. So anyone who's working in the pandemic times, it was an odd time to be on Broadway because the show was going really well. We were in previews. We had a month of previews. We had just started. So we were still working and honing and changing and tightening and seeing what a New York audience reacts to. And suddenly, but as I say, you know, we're rehearsing and maybe a week before we actually went into the theater Chris Ashley in rehearsal, our director goes to me, you know, we're not going to open this season. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, this, this virus that's coming, it's going to shut Broadway down. I'm like, crazy. What are you talking about? But suddenly, like two weeks later, we all knew like, oh, something, something's up here, mm-hmm. clearly. And as anyone working in shows will tell you, everyone's advanced sales suddenly died. And there were still audiences coming, but you suddenly saw pockets of seats where, you know, like holes, like not in the back of the theater where it was unsold, but like in the middle of the theater, meaning people have bought tickets and didn't show up, which, mm. you know, you don't, you don't see that. And you could tell audiences were, and audiences were great. They were responding, but the, you can tell they were getting a little nervous by the end. And then, so we shut down um, 
we were literally having a rehearsal. It was like our seventh or eighth preview, and like around two o'clock, our producer, uh, great another great producer, Beth Williams, walks in and says, "Okay, stop rehearsal. Everyone gather in front of the stage." And we all sort of knew it was coming. And she said, "I just came from a meeting of the Broadway League with all the producers, and we're shutting Broadway, shutting down for three weeks." And while we're having this talk in the theater, the stagehands are literally wrapping up the costumes and the sets like they were shutting down. It was surreal. It was like, okay. I think two or three months in when we realized it was going to be uh, an extended uh, time and no one knew how long. And many of our cast uh, members got sick. No one, Nakua, got seriously sick. But it was, you know, like if Broadway was still running another week. All the half the shows would have shut down anyway because people were getting sick. And, and my collaborator, David Bryan, got really sick. He didn't have to uh-huh. go to the hospital, but I talked to him a couple of times and he looked like and then he did a TV interview about it. And he looked just like gaunt and death warmed over. I was like, holy oh, shit. Joe. I was really worried for a couple of days and he, he rallied. But so it was, you know, it was a really, as we all know, a freaky time. And then like two or three months in. Our producers said, you know, we have these sets, we have these costumes, we have the show we love. What can we do? What can we do? Because we don't know when we're coming back. And one of our producers is Frank Marshall, who's a big Hollywood producer. And he calls up a couple of the streamers and says, hey, would you be interested in coming to the theater and filming the show? And Netflix just jumped on it. So we like had no idea. And then and basically this was before any were the vaccines. It was right away that September. I think we shut down in March. So for September, we all had to isolate in a hotel tested three times a week. You couldn't see family or loved ones. The, we, the creatives were on different floors than the actors. And when your food was delivered to a box in front of your door, it was very, it was wild. It was a little, um, it was disconcerting, but we, everyone was working, you know, every, we were actually paying people, uh, which was great. And then we went in the theater and Netflix, like the first day there were like nine cameras, like they ripped out the orchestra because we couldn't have an audience. <laughs> and yeah. so it, was, it was this wild, wild thing, you know, and they ran through the show twice and filmed it. And then they spent three or four days doing pickup shots with all these angles and stuff. I think we all felt very lucky. We were very happy. Um, Chris Ashley directed and edited the film. I think he did a great job on it. Netflix really was excited about it and they held it for a year because they said, we want to do this when Broadway reopens and this is the big sweeps time for them. So it's, it's not quite a business model. I know it exposes people to Diana and to Broadway um, yeah. amazed, you know, how many millions of people have seen it already and how many people who would never see a Broadway show have seen it. So it's just, you know, it's one of those things where just like our all credit to our producers, they just like, you know, want to do something different, want to do something creative. And it was at a very dark time in, you know, all of our lives, you know, working on the show. I wonder you know, if it'll start happening more and more. I hope so. I think it's a great thing. It's, and they did know. it with Come From Away too, which was, yeah. it was, it was great too. Beautiful I want to know how you did some of those quick costume changes because some of them are pretty hard to figure out, Joe. Come on. was Yeah, there... they are actually on stage. That's all. Yes, that's all. So that like, wasn't edited in in the movie making. No, huh? that's all. It actually is very some impressive. Of those really, you know, because Diana was, uh, you know, very much um, knew how to get media attention by what she was wearing. We felt that the clothes were. Uh, an important part of her stories and a fun part of her story. How about Chris Ashley, both of his shows being on Netflix? He's now like a major director on the streaming sensation Netflix. He's super talented and I've, you know, and he's a collaborator I've worked with many times before. I have other things coming up. So um, yeah, no, it's, you know, look, it's, it's great for everyone to uh, creatively to spread their wings as much as they can in theater, right. To do, you know, television and movies and stream and this new world of streamers where what's TV and what's a movie is very blurred. And if you could have a second show that represents kind of your work, which other piece of yours would you like to have? On Netflix? Oh, yeah. I would love, I would love to have had a recording of the thing about men with Mary Lee and everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show. And uh, I think that's a show that has an edge to it that would really play well in these times. Such, such fun. Plus the cast just adored each other. And so we, all we did all was right. laugh. And what about David Bryan? How did you two connect with each other? Is it a, Jer- a Jersey connection or <laughs> no, were you a part think. of Bon Jovi and we just didn't know it? Like, how did that all happen? <laughs> it was, uh, and this was uh, 25 years ago now, 1995. Um, uh, I was, I'd written a draft of, I was commissioned to write Memphis and I written a draft of it. And I wrote what I call dummy lyrics in it. I just wrote quick lyrics, like first draft. 
you know, I said, this is about the birth of rock and roll. I would love a rocker to write this. And I knew mm. exactly zero rockers. So I gave it to my agent and he said, oh, you know, I know a couple of uh, rock and roll managers. I'll give it to them. I'm like, okay, fine. Sounds good. Sent it out. I sort of forgot about it probably for a month or two. And then one day I literally get a call saying, hi, Joe, this is David Bryan. I'm the keyboardist for Bon Jovi. And I just read your script for Memphis and I hear every song in my head and I want to know how I can write the score. I was like, uh, okay. Uh, you know, rock stars did, usually don't call me. So uh, I was like, <laughs> okay, fine. And then he, I said, well, you know, we chatted. He seemed like a good guy. And I said, look, pick a song. There's some dummy lyrics in, do whatever you want and send it to me. And then we'll talk. And he goes, great. Like very, you know, just like no fuss, no uncertainty, no negotiation. Just, yeah, great. I'll write a song for you. Hung up. And uh, I thought, oh, a couple of weeks later, I'll get something. And the next day there was a FedEx uh, with a, with uh, a CD. This was in the days before. MP3. The next day. The wow. next, next day. day. He literally said, I heard all these songs in my head. He picked, um, it was from him. And he picked the song called Music of My Soul, which is the second song in the show, which is essentially the I Want song, which details the, what the character really feels about music and how it's going to take us through the show. And I put it on my CD player and I listened to it once. And I said, I hope he's not crazy because he's the guy. And then he wow. just heard it. Yeah, that was literally that easy. And then we met and he's a good guy, you know, because you think, ooh, a rock guy, it's going to be weird to work with. But he's just like a real down to earth Jersey guy um, who happens to be in a huge band. And, uh, you know, he's one of those compute composers who just hears melody and music all the time. It's so funny. I love when you have those moments in life where you just kind of know and it just sort of falls right in front of you and you just go, yep, yep, that's it. I was like, that's it. Yeah, I love those moments. Yeah. And that song was in the show forever. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And now it's time for the five questions. Joe, do you have a good luck charm or a ritual that you use either before writing or before the opening of a new show? Oh, that's a good question. Do I have a good luck charm? I don't know if I do. You don't uh, dance in the rain naked or anything? <laughs> well, I do that anyway. <laughs> that's where I'm going right after the podcast. <laughs> Um, uh, no, you know, I, you know, actually my ritual is always after I always, when I come home from like an opening, the first thing I do is I walk my dog. Like I always, you know why? Because you know what openings are like there. You're the bell of the ball and they're stressful and and the producers are nervous about review, you know, so it's all that stuff going on. But, uh, I've always had dogs for the last 20 years. And right now we have two uh, Havanese and, uh, used to have two pugs. Yeah, I remember I your pug, two yeah. pugs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to bring Rocco to the rehearsal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a rehearsal. Dog, and I used yeah. to bring Natick. Remember? I used yeah, to bring that's right. <laughs> that's right. Oh my God. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love dogs in rehearsals. I think they're so relaxing for I everyone. Agree. I, I do too. So as long as you're not allergic, it is yep. a, a perfect, perfect, perfect thing to have in a rehearsal. Really, it's like the uh, great equalizer. Yep. Everybody comes together to love on something. Yeah. It's really it's good. Great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. But no, I was so basically after every opening I do, I make sure I come home. It gives me an excuse to sort of get home at a relatively decent hour and then walk the dog. And that just like brings every, yeah, this is what I love. This is what I'm about. You know, it's about this. And then the very next morning I do try to work on another project. If you could have any talent or ability, what would it be? I would love to be able to fly. I would love to just be able to go like, I'm going to London for the day and just like mm-hmm. go across the water. That's so that's that's the dream. And the second dream, which I am actually probably lucky I don't have, but I wish just because I've worked with, you know, folks like yourself, Mary Lee, and you know, seen Stephanie. And I wish I could sing, which I can't really sing a note. And it's probably good I, I can't because I'd probably pursue it and I'd probably be awful. But uh I really have such you have been written so many music, I have such great respect for. Broadway singers and what you all can do eight times a week and the excitement you can bring and what that must feel like. Like that's, I would, I would love to feel, to, to, to experience how that feels. You know, what's funny is you gave both the answers that Lynn and Stephen gave Lynn Aarons and Stephen oh, Flaherty, Stephen Flaherty wanted to fly and Lynn Aarons wanted to sing. You're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Okay. If you were a pizza, are you a thin, thick crust or deep dish? And what are your toppings, Joe? Oh yeah, I, I always think about this question. You uh, do. <laughs> I love Deep it. That's what I'm saying. I love it. Oh God, uh, I probably I'm a, I probably am thick. 
I feel like I'm thick crust because uh-huh. uh, I'm a thick guy. And um, my toppings, I'm hopefully I'm like, uh, I like to think I'm pepperoni, which would be like well-liked and spicy. Yeah. Maybe more anchovy, which is like a, uh, you know, not everyone likes, but acquired, acquired taste. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Pepperoni and anchovy. (laughs) All right, Joe. Yeah. You're kidnapped. Mm -hmm. You have one phone call to your boyfriend. Yeah. But you have to tell him you're in trouble without telling him you're in trouble. What do you say? How does he know you've been kidnapped? How does he know that you've been kidnapped and you need help? Uh, hey, Derek, uh, let's go to a sporting event tonight. <laughs> that's mine. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's what Let I say. Mine, mine would be, yeah. oh, I'm so bummed. I won't be able to watch that football game with you. <laughs> yes, yeah. no, that would be that's mine. mine. Yeah. Very clear. Okay, here's another crazy question, mm-hmm. but it gets you thinking. If you were a nail polish color, what color would it be? And what would the cheeky little name of that nail polish color? Oh, uh, I got to say red because I love red. Mm-hmm. Uh, like my, I, cre- I think red is a very creative color. And my office, I painted red, which is a bold choice, as my friends say. But I feel like it's just very <laughs> creative. So I would see I'm, I'm red. I'm definitely red. Na- I'm definitely red nail polish color. Uh, and I would call it Rocco Red based named after my dog, my beloved dog. dog, 15 years old, who's no longer with us. And Mary Lee knew. I would be Rocco Red, and he was uh, he was uh, oddly very he was he was the type of dog that when I was riding would sleep at my feet for hours. So I, oh. I feel like very inspired by uh, his uh, just breathing, like you know the yeah. that's the dog sleeping. Like, is there a better sound? So yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh. Listen, this was so great. I really appreciate you taking the time and talking to us. It's so good to see you and to catch up with you. I so enjoyed it. And it was so good to see you both too. I'm glad you're both doing well. All right. Much love. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Coming up next, what struck a chord with us right after this break. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our theme song says, love where you are now, but sometimes we all need a little help. I've learned from therapy and in my yoga practice that growth comes from challenges. A good therapist can help you reframe the way you look at a challenge and your life. And BetterHelp can provide you with a therapist that gives you some tools to navigate. They offer customized online therapy, either on video or phone chat sessions. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can reach a therapist in under 48 hours. And right now, Stages cast members get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp, so don't wait. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support Stages Podcast. So log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages, and love where you are now. Mary Lee, you know, Joe, uh, like intimately in the sense that you guys have been in a rehearsal room together. You guys would have your dogs at rehearsals together. I found him to be so wonderful. And now I want to work on something with him. But tell me what it's like to be in a room with him, actually. Yeah, he he immediately makes you feel very comfortable. He really appreciates the actors. And I found him to be just a joy. He's wonderful. But, you know, I want to tell you a story about Joe. I, I was writing something and I um, I wrote an opening scene, an opening number. Okay. And I wanted his feedback. So I hadn't spoken to him in ages. And I just sent him an email. And I said, could I trouble you to just read through something and give me some feedback? And he read it right away and said, let's make a phone call. He called me up and he sat on the phone with me for probably two and a half hours, dissecting the scene, giving me all this advice saying, this is where this should go. This is what you should do over here. This is how you should move. This is too broad. You have to think about it this way. This is why this will work when they did it, but this is why yours won't work if you do it. And it was, he gave me this little mini masterclass just because he's a nice guy. Wow. I mean, that's just what he's like. Just a really, really like generous a, human being. Extremely generous. Extremely. Yeah. I wish I had asked him if someone had been that generous with him. And that's where he kind of learned it. Or if it's just innate. It's truly a nice human being. I Very grounded. Very grounded. 
That's exactly right. Because sometimes you think, ooh, these these writers of musicals and plays, they're they're heady. They take their work so seriously. They're not um, flexible in the sense that they don't want to change their work. But he even spoke, look, if you're jumping into the pool of musical theater, you have to be collaborative. You have to be willing to change. I also, one sentence that he said, and in pure Stephanie fashion, I'm going to paraphrase and get it wrong. But he kept saying, if something is going really right, and then later in the piece, something's wrong, and you yeah. want to fix what something's wrong, don't take what's going right and, and move it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to break one that thing not- that's working to there fix something is. else that's not working. Yeah. That's what he was saying. And yeah. I was like, even beyond work, like that is so me in my life, I'll look at something and be like, Ooh, this is really, really great. Now, how can I move the really, really great in order to fix the stuff that's not going so well? And that has never been the answer. And I don't know why I always double down on stuff like that. Uh When am I going to learn that, you know, just work on the stuff that's not so great without disturbing what's going really well. The other thing, the other thing I just love that he said was how success and failure are illusions. Like it's, there really is no success. There really is no failure. What is that? I think he said, right? It, it, right. Was a, it wasn't a big success, whatever that means, right? That's what he said. And I think it's, it's, it's so, success and failure are taken from our own perspective. It's just our own point of view. It's our, and it's colored with our own experiences, with what we've been taught success and failure mean. Um, I remember for me, I would never let myself say I was an actor until I could support myself on actor money. Mm. Because to me, once I got paid, then I was really an actor. And Mm. so that was sort of my definition of what it meant to be successful. Am I supporting myself as an actor? Well, then I'm actually one. And really that's such a terrible way to think about it because it limits you in so many ways. Mm. Money doesn't define your worth. And it's part of why he's so nice and part of why he's so grounded is he has this way of coming home. He walks his dog, his feet are on the ground. He remembers what's really important. He connects back to that small part of his world that feels like a real true success for him. Right. So other people's judgments of his work don't don't matter as much. And I just love that about him. I thought that was really profound. It all comes down to ego, right? Success and failure is really defined by ego. And once you take that out of it, then it just becomes uh, an experience or some, a lesson, uh, something that is for me seems much more, uh, part of a healthier mindset. Like success seems so finite failure seems so finite and nothing in this world and nothing in our art form is ever really finite. It's constantly ebbing and flowing and growing and breathing. And so, yeah, once you remove the ego of it all, which is not an easy task for anyone, even if, you know, you're on the stage, behind the stage, walking through life. Have you been able to see Diana on Netflix? I did see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it was fun. Yeah. It's fun. I kind of wish I could have seen it live because I heard that they had made some changes when they came back up and put it back on Broadway, but I didn't get to see it. Well, again, because the art form is never finite, it's constantly changing. You know, I saw it too on Netflix and I really enjoyed it. There were some heartfelt moments, but you know, it, there was, um, I hope it doesn't take any offense to this, but there was some camp to it too. Now, I personally think that was part of their plan. I don't think uh, it was in error that there was some camp to it, but I so enjoyed those moments. And I'm finding that in our world of musical theater, especially on social media, like Casey Mink and Robbie Roselle, they all have quite a large following and they felt the same way. There's now like this cult energy that is circled around the musical and, um, the great part is, right, if if you had to see it on Broadway, you're paying anywhere from $70 to $120 every time you have to see it. But everybody's getting their fix by going back to Netflix and watching it again or watching just a particular scene or a particular song. And I will be very interested to see if in the next several years, this is now perhaps not the norm, but it will become much more typical to mm. see some musicals, mm. you know, streaming online. Yeah. Um, how it affects ticket sales. You know, I don't necessarily have the brain of a, a theater owner or a producer, but I certainly think 
when people want to go to that art form and see a stage production of something and perhaps they can't afford it or they don't have the time or mm-hmm. just to pop in and get mm-hmm. their fill, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Get their yeah, fill I do. of the laughter and the music and the- And it might expose people to theater that otherwise have never seen theater and inspire For them sure. to go and see a show, you know? For sure. For sure. I mean, but, I just want to make sure that it always is represented in the way that it's intentioned. If it looks different on the screen, then I don't know if it's really working to the benefit of the art form, you know, but when you're thinking that large scale, how can you possibly control everything? Yeah. Yeah. I actually have another uh, little story to tell you, just like a super kindness that someone did for me. So I had to put that three-legged dog down right before oh, Christmas. Bo. He, Sweet yeah, he, Bo. Bo passed away because he was just riddled with cancer. It was devastating. And I was totally heartbroken. And in the process, um, he, he didn't mean to, but he turned his head and his tooth hit my face. And so I had a puncture wound and a big, huge bruise on my face. So the next morning I wake up and I'm a wreck. I'm a wreck. I have a big bloody thing. My hat's pulled way down over my eyes. Cause I could, I would burst into tears randomly and I am in the nail salon and I'm getting it. And I'm trying not to talk to anyone, trying not to look at anyone. And the woman knows me because I go in there every couple of weeks. She was like, are you okay? And I was like, I am. I don't want to go into details because I don't want to cry. But uh, yeah, I had to put my dog down yesterday. It was very traumatic. I'm very upset. I really can't talk about it. I, like pull my hat back down. So I'm going to leave. And I'm paying the bill. And the girl behind the desk says, oh, this woman left this for you. And I was like, what woman? And she said, she was just a woman that was just in here. I don't think you know her. She left me a note and said, "Uh, I know how you feel. I love dogs too. Your next nail appointment's on me and gave me a gift card. I mean, is that like, so then of course I stood there bawling my eyes. I'm like, I have to go. You cried even more, didn't you? (laughs) I have to leave now. I'm like, where did my car? cried the whole way home. But I don't know who you are, lady. And I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but I hope someday this finds you. The little nail salon in Georgetown and you left me a present and it meant so much to me. Isn't that so kind? Yes. Again, just being aware, noticing somebody else going through something and the just a a teeny little thing. It didn't even have to be a monetary thing. It's just, she took the time to recognize someone else and where they were and you were not doing well. And she wanted to- No, it was a wreck. (laughs) She was very sweet. That is very, very sweet. All right. Well, I am going to go out and try to do something nice for someone today. I don't quite know what that is, but hopefully I'll pay attention enough and it will reveal itself to me. Good. I love it. I love it. Let me know what happens. I will. I'll tell you. Have a good day. Love you. I love you. Bye. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.